Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 12, God gives us his holy, inerrant, and infallible word for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading as it is read in the presence of God's people. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Matthew chapter 9. Our sermon text for this morning, Matthew 9. We'll read the end of chapter 9 and then into into chapter 10, excuse me. So we'll begin at verse 35. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 35. through to chapter 10, verse 15. Hear once again God's holy word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before your word, asking that you would open our minds and our hearts to teach us, that you would breathe life into us, grant us your grace and your spirit, uh, that we might have faith and not unbelief, and that we might go forth from here trusting in Christ alone for salvation and eager to show forth all that you have done in our lives. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In this declaration, there is certainly reference or allusion to the ancient world, those who would run into the city or from town to town, uh, perhaps at times of war, to give uh, the news of the outcome of the battle, and certainly if, the, uh, if their town was victorious or their people had been victorious, this was indeed blessed or welcome news. Or one who would run at the command of the king from town to town, publishing some good tidings that the king wanted spread abroad to his people. The vigor of these servants was appreciated, their words even more so. In all of their doings, in all that they did, though, what was recognized is that they were representing someone else. As they spoke, it was not ultimately to be them who you heard, but the one speaking behind them, the one speaking through them. And this gave shape to much of the the way word was spread in the ancient world. Uh, Moving forward to modern times, uh, missionary and one-time Olympic champion Eric Little was blessed with beautiful feet. His undeniable running gifts, coupled with his true gentleman's and sportsman's attitude, his unquestioned integrity, uh, made him a national hero. But just months before the Olympics, uh, he was called a traitor. He was refusing to run his best event because one of the preliminary races, as we all know the story quite well, was to be run on the Sabbath. And so the hatred that spilled forth on this man for betraying his country was apparent in many ways and documented in history. He was undeterred. He saw running and training as part of his overall life discipline, helped him to serve God, to run. And as we know from from the movie, he felt the pleasure of God when he ran. So he overcame all odds. He won an event that really wasn't supposed to be his best event, won the gold medal 
at the Olympics, the 400 meters. He was heroized as something larger than life, a man who even back then was certainly set apart from all of his competitors in his devotion to God and what he truly believed, but then also his incredible athletic skill. So it came as no surprise to many that after the Olympics, it seemed to be no difficult decision for him to to leave the world of acclaim and running and to pursue a higher calling in missions work in China. He was still in his prime. Many people said he should train for another Olympics. There's, There's probably no, the sky is the limit for a talent like this who can go between events and still dominate in the way that he did. He received praise at the hands of men for his beautiful feet, for his beautiful running skills. But all of that paled in comparison to spreading what he called the great message for the people of China, people whom he loved and people whom he believed needed to hear the message of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Why did he act in such a way? What was it that animated his heart? Well, what animated his heart is largely the same as what has animated uh, the missionary spirit of the church since the days of Jesus Christ. It is the blessing of serving the Lord of the church and doing so by proclaiming the message which he has given to us. And we do so because there is urgency in this message. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So here's where we're going this morning in our few minutes together. The good news of the gospel means that it must be proclaimed. And and, and we see that happening here in this passage before us. This is a very specific mission that Jesus gives to his disciples, and we'll talk about that. But yet we still learn so much from this passage in Matthew, even for our time today. Where we're going this morning is to to look at the centrality of proclamation, to consider the the sin of unbelief, and also the urgency of the call to faith. We're going to go consider those those three things as we look at the the men and the mission and the message and the urgency. So the men of the mission, the message of the mission, and the urgency of the mission. First, let's look at the men of the mission. In verse 35 of chapter 9, we see kind of a summary of what's been happening since the end of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. We've had a collection of healings of Jesus as he has uh, finished that first great discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is a bit of a summary, bringing all of this uh, to a close, moving to a new part of the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 35, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching and proclaiming and healing. In the midst of that, though, we see Jesus lamenting a reality. He's lamenting the reality that there are many who are in Israel, they are like lost sheep. And why are they like lost sheep? They're like lost sheep because of a failure in leadership. They are sheep without a shepherd, which brings again another proclamation uh, from Jesus that condemns the ruling religious class there in Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees who had placed burdens on the people that they were not willing to bear themselves. This moves Jesus then to call on his disciples to pray. Pray earnestly that workers would be sent out into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This has been a special verse in consideration of of my own life. I uh, asked my father to preach this passage at uh, my Michelle and my wedding, which is maybe an interesting wedding passage, but we wanted this to give shape to really how we thought about 
our lives serving in, in the ministry. Jesus says, pray earnestly that they would go out into the harvest. Something about that we can think about with what Jesus says here is this teaches us something, doesn't it? About the mind and the heart of God. Jesus is moved to compassion. And why is he moved to compassion? He's moved to compassion and God is pleased to proclaim salvation to the lost because God loves those whom he has created. When an inventor comes up with something and he finds that it's defective, does he generally just abandon all hope? No, what's he going to do? He's going to to pour his, his heart into trying to figure out how to make it work well. God, as the creator of all people, is filled with a love for those whom he has created. John Calvin says this, he says, God is affected with fatherly love towards the whole human race since he created and formed it. For if a workman loves his work because he recognizes in it the fruits of his industry, so when God has manifested his power and goodness in the formation of men, he must certainly embrace them with affection. Calvin answers the question that comes up in our minds when he says, true, indeed, we are abominable in God's sight through being corrupted by original sin, as it is said elsewhere. But inasmuch as we are men, we must be dear to God, and our salvation must be precious in his sight. Dear to God, and our salvation precious in his sight. Jesus is moved to compassion. He says, pray earnestly that there would be those who go into the world, into the harvest, as an expression, a representation of the love and the compassion of God in Jesus Christ. Why is there a pastor standing before you this morning? Because God loves his people. Because God has compassion for the lost. Why is the gospel proclaimed in every corner of the world? Because God has compassion for sinners. That's why. And we should not forget that. And so Christ calls his 12 closest disciples to him and he sends them out, as we see in chapter 10. The sentness of the apostles, this is the first time you see in verse 1, they're called the 12 disciples. Verse 2, they're called the 12 apostles. So Matthew is calling our attention to something under the inspiration of the Spirit there. The word apostle is a cognate of the verb apostello, to be sent, those who are sent, sent on a mission, sent to do something on behalf of someone else. The sentness of the apostles means that they are representing Jesus. It means that they are carrying out their mission and not their own. They are acting under his authority, which Jesus explicitly gives them in verse 1. All the 12 apostles are, are listed for us. begins with the one about whom we probably know the most, other than the apostle Paul. It begins with the apostle Peter and then his brother, the sons of Zebedee, those first four, we know the most about them. The next group, we know some, some about them, and a couple of them have famous stories. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew. The last four, other than Judas, Judas is always named last, the one who betrayed Jesus. The last four, or three of the four at least, are more obscure. We don't know as much about them. Thaddeus, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, and then, of course, Judas. Many of them, we, we, we know things about them in the history of the church. We, guard, we regard them with great reverence as the apostles of, of Jesus Christ. But what do we make of these men at this point? 
None of them are of great repute, none, none of, of standing or wealth. A, a couple of them, the sons of Zebedee, seem to have some money, but none of them come from exorbitant wealth. None of them grant any ad- earthly advantage to Jesus. We, we, always, we tend to think along these lines of, of earthly power and influence, and influential people, tend to, we tend to be drawn to them more than others. None of these men grants anything to, to, to any advantage to Jesus. It's only what he has made them to be. William Hendrickson puts it so wonderfully. He says, what points up the greatness of Jesus is that he took such men as these and welded them into an amazingly influential community with all of their faults and foibles. Even when we leave out Judas, we cannot help but be impressed with the majesty of the Savior whose drawing power and comparable wisdom and matchless love are so astounding that he was able to gather around himself and to unite into one family men of entirely different, at times even opposite, backgrounds and temperaments. It should remind us or cause us to think not so much that we are all destined for great things in Jesus Christ. That's that's not the take-home as we consider the apostles. But rather, we are loved by a great Savior. The greatness of Jesus Christ is what shines as we see the apostles and as we consider all that Jesus did through them. We may not be destined for great things, but we are loved by a great Savior who can use us as he sees fit for big things or for small things, at least in the eyes of the world and the ongoing history of the church. Most of us probably won't be remembered in the pages of church history, but we serve a great Savior, and he is powerful enough. He is the same one who shaped all of these men to establish his church. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And it reminds us that he receives all of the glory. All that we see in the apostles that is commendable in terms of any spiritual value, where does it come from? It comes from God working through them in in Christ. It's because they served a great Savior. What are they sent to do? Well, it's not a journey of enrichment, and Jesus makes that very clear. Some people make a lot of the differences with uh, the Gospel of Mark here as Jesus gives his, uh, his instructions to them. The difference seems simply to be that Mark tells them what they can bring on the journey. Matthew is describing what they can acquire on their journey, or rather what they should not acquire on their journey. It's a call to shun luxury, to travel unencumbered. That was so that the mission would be central. And the mission uh, is what is most important. This is not normative for the church for future missions projects. It's very obviously just a a one-time mission that Jesus sent them out at this specific time in redemptive history. This is not sort of instructions for what you send out missionaries with or what they can acquire specifically, but there are principles that we learn from it. The church is not a way for people to get rich. The church is not uh, an instrument towards an unto earthly wealth. In addition to not filling their coffers with riches, they are not to search for the best accommodations or connections. Find a house that is worthy, as it says, and stay there. Don't try to to, to change. And you you sense that the, the, the spirit there is don't try to go from one place to stay in a better place to maybe stay in a better place. Find a place that will work and remain there. It was not a way to to network earthly power and influence. 
What is worthiness? And this gives understanding to the rest of what we read in regards to the house and giving its blessing. Who is worthy? Not someone necessarily of, of moral uprightness and holiness necessarily, or, although that would probably be a part of it. Worthiness is acceptance of the message that they proclaimed. That was who is worthy. And that brings us then to consider the message of the mission. Jesus says, only go to the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's probably a a practical reason and a theological reason for this. The practical reason is that this would probably be, if they were to go and proclaim the, the, the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand to Gentile towns, it might be too much too soon for the apostles. We read in Luke chapter 9, Uh, that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people, though, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John were so uh, exercised with the thought that Samaritans were rejecting Jesus, that they wanted fire to come down from heaven to consume them. And even if you go to the book of Acts, you see that the church was, was slow in realizing and embracing this idea that the Messiah was to be proclaimed freely throughout all of the nations. So when you're teaching a child to swim, you don't throw them right into the deep end on the first try. You work up to that. This probably would have been too much too soon for there's a practical reason, but there's a theological reason too. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Messiah was sent to the people of Israel, and the Gentiles who come to embrace this Savior and this Messiah are grafted on to the tree of covenant promise, grafted into the people of God, seeing Abraham as their spiritual father, and seeing the people of Israel as our ancestors in a real, in a real way. But what did they proclaim? Well, they were sent to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this proclamation would have been to proclaim Jesus' authority and his kingship. There were signs that were accompanying this power and authority, as we have seen in Matthew since the Sermon on the Mount, showing the power of Jesus. So what did this message mean? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, it would have been, similarly to John the Baptist, a call to repentance. But there's an important difference. John the Baptist is proclaiming a a baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. He was saying, judgment is coming, so repent. Jesus and his apostles, what are they proclaiming? The day of salvation is here. Repent and seek the Lord while he may be found. So you have the urgency of what John the Baptist was proclaiming, but you have the joy of present salvation. The joy of present salvation. So it's urgency and it's joy. And this shapes what the church is going to proclaim from this time forward. It's a message of urgency and it's a message of great joy. The day of salvation is here. Christ has come. Nevertheless, if he is rejected, judgment will come. We see this spirit shape the the mission of the church. For instance, in places like 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul describes what he's doing this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Christ has come. Now is the day of salvation. Now is a favorable time. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You can hear almost the urgency in Paul's voice as he is proclaiming this. And the urgency there in the proclamation. And so that brings us then to our last consideration this morning, the urgency of the mission. See, the urgency of the mission in in this passage, this was again a special mission for the apostles, but it gives principles that we see at work throughout the history of the church. Why is the mission of the church urgent? Why is our message to be proclaimed with urgency? Well, three reasons. First, our mission is urgent because Christ gives true peace. The peace that is pronounced by the apostles here had everything to do, as they're talking about the house and giving its greeting, everything to do with whether or not the message of Jesus' kingship is received. The response to the apostles determined God's blessing and how God's blessing is bestowed. If the messengers, if the apostles are not welcomed, their blessing will return to them. Jesus shows just how important their mission is by this remark. Those who receive the apostles receive Jesus. Those who receive Jesus receive true and lasting peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. Ephesians 2, he came and preached peace. Do we understand the nature of the peace that Jesus gives? It transcends all other kinds of peace. We're all rightly praying for peace in the world. We're seeing things that the world has not, the Western world has not seen in in many, many, many years. But if you know Jesus Christ, the peace you have surpasses any notion of earthly or worldly peace. The apostolic greeting, grace to you and peace, it's not just wishful thinking, it's true reality. In Christ, you have peace with the creator and Lord of the universe. Our message message is urgent because it grants true peace and lasting and ultimate peace. Secondly, our message is urgent because rejecting Christ means to reject that peace. The apostles engage in actions here, the shaking off the dust of their feet, that makes one think of what one would do after leaving pagan lands. Shake that dust off because you're leaving the land of the heathens. But they were to do this in Israelite towns. Shocking in many ways. Don Carson says this, A pious Jew, upon leaving Gentile territory, might remove from his feet and clothes all dust of the pagan land now being left behind, thus dissociating himself from the pollution of those lands and the judgment in store for them. For the disciples to do this to Jewish homes and towns would be a symbolic way of saying that the emissaries of the Messiah now view those places as pagan, polluted, and liable to judgment. Shocking. And we see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
Many will come from east and west and dine at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Matthew 11, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Rejecting Christ is to reject peace. That's what makes the message urgent. And then finally, rejecting Christ means you will stand alone on judgment day. And not knowing Christ means you will stand alone on judgment day. One's eternal destiny turns on one's relationship to Jesus, we might say, whether or not they are in union with the Savior through faith, trusting in his work. When Jesus says it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the one who rejects the message of this kingdom, what do we learn from that? We learn from that that the greatest sin, because we often point to that account in Scripture as examples of some of the most heinous sin that we find in Scripture, and it is true. That is true, isn't it? A wicked place, a vile place. The greatest sin is unbelief. The greatest sin is unbelief. There is nothing like coming near unto Jesus and rejecting him. There is nothing like rejecting the Son of God. I say that to bring him before you today. This is urgent, brothers and sisters. It's urgent. Do you believe in the peace that Jesus gives Do you believe that he has lived and died for sin and for sinners? And do you believe that the price was paid for you on the cross? Not just that he is a savior, but that he is your savior. Do you place your faith and trust in his work? Have you accepted that truth with a believing heart, is the way the Heidelberg Catechism says. Just like the bleeding woman from last week, that we reach up to him with the arms of faith and grasp onto his sufficiency and his righteousness, knowing and believing that only in him can we be saved. This is urgent. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Grasp hold of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. I also want to speak to you, believer, who, though saved, still struggles with unbelief. We all struggle with unbelief, don't we? Too often our faith is sprinkled with unbelief. A lack of faith that God's word is really true. A lack of faith that we will give an account to God. A lack of faith that God still sees all that we do and that all that we do really matters. A lack of faith that God is truly in control. A lack of faith that God truly loves you in the midst of your suffering. A lack of faith that God is truly good. Too often our faith is sprinkled with unbelief. We may have saving faith, but we are resistant to the ways that a vital faith, that a growing faith, claims the territory of our hearts. Use this passage to remind yourself how hated, how vile unbelief is. We conclude by saying this, that Christ will have dominion. This is the beginnings of the missionary movement of the church for this one specific time, and then it begins to go outward and more and more, and we rejoice in what we learn here.
But we conclude by saying that Christ shall have dominion. Like the apostles, the church is to be on message and on mission. We must cling to the proclamation of the message of Christ, of the kingdom of God, of reconciliation to the Savior by what he has done on behalf of sinners. The message shapes the mission, as one of my heroes puts it. If the church remains on message, she will remain on mission. Like the apostles, we are to be on message and on mission. The message and the mission are clear and to be clearly and simply represented. One of the things that we see, people say, well, what about the the, the healing power that the apostles had in this passage? Why don't we have that, generally speaking? Why, Why can't we go through the world casting out demons and raising the dead and making all of these healings? Then the message would really spread. I say to you, brothers and sisters, that we have the opportunity each day to put the power of Christ on display in the midst of our world. Manifesting the power of Christ in our lives by showing those around us that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our hardships, we have joy and satisfaction and contentment in the Savior. That is powerful. That's one of the things that we are clearly called to do with Christ's presence in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as we go through this world, that we have joy and satisfaction and contentment in Jesus Christ. That puts the power of the gospel and the power of the kingdom on display. And mixing that or or, or combining that with the proclamation of Christ shows in many ways the same things that was being shown here, the apostles, proclaiming Christ and healing and showing power. We show the power of Christ in the way that we live out our joy in him. But then about dominion. What is the dominion that we have? We are to have a penultimate view of of dominion. And, And by that I mean simply this. As the church, we don't claim territory. As the church, we don't take up arms and say, this is now our turf. We expect rejection. We expect suffering. And yet, nevertheless, the kingdom advances as Christ claims by his power the territory of human hearts and those who give themselves in love and devotion and faithfulness, and we joyfully await the day where he will manifest his rule from sea to sea. But the kingdom grows and advances. Sometimes you may see the influence of Christ in places more or less, and that will have to do with how brightly the light is shining in the church. But we understand and know that we await the day when his reign will be known from sea to sea. And then lastly, just a call to all of us to hear the words of Jesus. In light of God's compassion, in light of the lostness of man, in light of the inadequacy of spiritual leadership throughout the world, pray. Pray earnestly that God would send laborers out into the harvest. That there would be those who would go into the world proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ holding forth the Savior and his love and compassion for sinners. Pray earnestly that the mission of the church would be realized and that the message would be faithfully proclaimed. What a joy it is to have some of those in our midst. Training for the gospel ministry. Training to go into the world to bear the light of Christ. Pray. Pray earnestly for workers to go out into the harvest. And then pray earnestly that God would equip you 
to be a light of Christ in your life, to show forth the power of the gospel in how God is shaping you and forming you to be a testament unto his glory, unto his sufficiency. Pray that if you have opportunity, God would give you the words to say if you have opportunity to speak of Christ and speak of the hope that is in you. How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who reject the praise of men, who those, those who reject the accolades that the world brings. For the approval of our God, as he uses willing servants to march through this earth who bear Christ's name, the approval of God is what we want. And we pray that we will all hear those words on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise and adoration for uh, your word. Pray that you will shape us unto it and unto its truth. Oh, Father, your servant, the one who proclaims your word, is inadequate. Oh, Father, imperfect. And we ask that you would work through his imperfections to shape all of us here unto uh, faith and hope and love. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 135.